So this morning we will look at the last of these four poems and this talk will be called How to Live a Life Without Opinions. <laughs> I'm going to read the, uh, the text without comment and then um, offer some reflections. One who dwells in ultimate views and presents them as final will declare all other views inferior. He has not overcome disputes. Seeing his own advantage, he seizes hold of views, words, rules and ideas in this way and sees everything else as base. The good opine that he puts down others because he has tied himself in knots. The beggar does not get entangled in views, words, ideas or rules. He does not elaborate a view on the ground of knowledge or morals. He neither claims to be equal nor thinks of himself as better or worse. He lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows. Nor does he, de nor does he join a dissenting faction. He assumes no view at all. He's not lured into the blind alleys of it is and it is not, this world and the next. For he lacks those commitments that make people ponder and seize hold of teachings. There's no hint of contrivance in his perception of views, words and ideas. Who can judge the priest who holds no views? By what standard can you measure him? He doesn't elaborate nor does he flatter. He has not taken up any teachings. You cannot gauge this priest by his rules. He has gone beyond, with nothing to fall back on. I'd like to start by looking at the... Um, other passage we haven't considered yet under the heading to Sivaka in your handout on the last page I think it is or the last but one page <clears throat> so this is the text that um, uh, starts the teacher was once staying in the squirrels feeding ground I'll just read it but it's very much to do with the same, uh, it's very much to do with what these poems are talking about. But it, 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 it teases it out into a more concrete example. The teacher was once staying at the squirrel's feeding ground in the bamboo grove at Rajagaha. Then the mendicant Topnot Sivaka approached and exchanged greetings with him. After a pleasant and courteous conversation, 
he sat down to one side and said, Mr. Gautamer, there are some wanderers and priests who voice the opinion and hold the view that whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant, painful or neither, is caused by what was done in the past. What do you say about this? And the Buddha replies, Some experiences are caused by bile, some by phlegm, some by wind, some by all three together. Some experiences are caused by the change of seasons, some by poor care, some by sudden assault, and some are the fruit of one's actions. You can know for yourself how such experiences occur. People in the world agree upon how such experiences occur. Those who believe that all experience is caused by what was done in the past surpass what can be known by themselves and what is accepted as true in the world. Therefore, I say that those wanderers and priests are mistaken. Um, I think this is a very, very rich text. It's also a very troubling text for most Buddhists. And we'll see why in a minute. The first point seems to be how to live a life without opinions um, doesn't mean that one somehow switches off one's brain. But here we get a clue as to what this might mean. Can we live a life um, based on what we know for ourselves? That's one criterion. What we learn from the commonly accepted knowledge of our culture, that's another opinion. Without um, uh, adding anything that surpasses or that cannot be uh, grounded in those two ways of knowing. So tentatively we might define opinion or view and in modern English we might say metaphysical view, as um, a belief that can neither be validated by one's own personal experience nor something that is validated by the commonly accepted knowledge of what is the case in the world. Two criteria. Now, the example that the text gives is there are some wanderers and priests who voice the opinion and hold the view, exactly the same terminology as of the poems, that whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant, painful or neither, is caused by what was done in the past. That's a metaphysical view. That's what the Buddha gives here as an example of an opinion or a view. In other words, it is a generalized statement 
about um, the nature of existence, of reality, that is held to be true in all situations, all contexts, all possibly imaginable places and times. That whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, that is the result of your past actions. The Buddha's response is basically to appeal almost to common sense. And he says, wait a minute, look, there are, we have experiences that uh, are the product of bile. Now, a little bit of context here. Bile, phlegm and wind are the three humors in classical Ayurvedic uh, Indian medicine. Uh, the same system is employed today in Tibetan medicine. You have three humors, and when these humors get out of balance, then you uh, fall ill. So you have illnesses which are bile disorders, phlegm disorders, wind disorders, or a disorder of all three together. So in other words, the Buddha is saying, look, if you're feeling sick, that's not because of some past karma, it's because your bile is out of sync with your phlegm, or whatever it might be. And then look at your external circumstances, the change of the seasons, the weather, the environment. You know, that's often very much the cause of how we feel. It's common sense. Or poor care. You don't look after yourself properly. You eat the wrong kind of food. You don't eat enough. You don't wear decent clothes or whatever it is. That's what causes you pleasure and pain. Sudden assault. In other words, you're happily doing your walking meditation and then somebody leaps out of a dark alley and bangs you on the head. You don't have to appeal to actions in a past lifetime. You just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But some of the things we experience are due to the fruits of our own actions. And we know that for ourselves. We don't have to appeal to a metaphysical theory of karma. Remember that the Buddha understands karma, action here, um, as intention. In other words, there are some things that happen to us that are the result of our intentions to say or do something. Like, for example, hmm, I'm going to go down the pub tonight. That's the intention. So you go down the pub and you drink, let's say, too many single malt whiskies or whatever it is, and you wake up in the next morning with the mother of all hangovers. You don't have to appeal to karma in past lives. You can just trace back a sequence of, 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 of choices, mm, starting with, mm, let's go down to the pub tonight. That's where it began, and that's the result of your action. In other words, it's, it's self-evident. This points, I think, very much to how uh, the early Buddhist tradition um, was fairly empirically minded. And it seemed very suspicious, as we've seen in these poems, of grandiose claims that uh, explain everything. And 
Many religions, or much religious belief, is of this nature. God is love, or life is suffering. These kind of generalized statements that people believe or disbelieve um, are of the order of something that we can never verify. But at the same time, and this is their most profoundly seductive appeal, is you can't refute them either. You can't disprove, you can't uh, falsify uh, the claim, everything I experience is the result of my past karma. You can't disprove that any more than you can disprove that God exists. So the seductive appeal of metaphysics is that it's, it's not falsifiable. And remember Karl Popper's famous um, uh, way of, of showing the distinctiveness of scientific, uh, the scientific approach is that any claim it makes can be falsified. In other words, we advance in our knowledge by, by falsifying what is currently the view. There's something very close to that uh, sensibility and that approach here. Now, Let me give you another example. Uh, this is from the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, chapter 22. And the Buddha's speaking again. He says, Beggars, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dhamma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Again, the same theme. Disputation is... The word that's translated as dispute is um, vivadati. Vadati is to state an opinion. Vivadati, v is an intensifier, like in vipassana. And it means not just stating an opinion, but um, arguing for that opinion, getting into a dispute about it. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Of that which the wise in the world agree upon as not existing, I too say that it does not exist. And of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, I too say that it exists. Now this passage points very clearly to how uh, the Buddha, or but let's just say the early tradition, that's Sangyuta Nikaya, chapter 22, section 94, page 949. <laughs> you have to look pretty hard to find these passages. <laughs> That's the trouble, you see. You've got hundreds of pages of basically Buddhist egg mayonnaise filler, and occasionally, <laughs> occasionally you hit a gem like this, you see. A fragment that's totally in accord with these poems. It's the same language, same terminology. And yet it's buried amongst a lot of other stuff. So this passage, I think, is a very good example. And again, it, it mirrors what we've been looking at so far. Is the Buddha's not actually interested in describing the world correctly but in suggesting a way in which we might live in this world, 
I think this is really crucial. Um, he's not interested, for example, in the nature of consciousness or the nature of mind or the nature of the body or the nature of the environment. And what this text I've just cited shows is that were he to want to know about these things, he would simply go to the people who are expert in those domains and ask their view and would, and would accept that. So all of this discussion about Buddhism and science, for example, you know, what does Buddhism have to say about consciousness, in one way, in fact in a rather important way, is missing the point. The Buddhism gets drawn into these discussions about the nature of mind, um, whereas in fact the project started with... Um, a set of advices, practical advices, as how to live in the world, how to respond to what happens to you. It's, it's pragmatic. It's not a dogmatic. Now, it's true that in the history of Buddhism in India, Buddhists contributed significantly to developments in Indian logic, epistemology, psychology, all of those things. Uh, Buddhist thinkers and writers were often key figures in these developments. But that might provide some very interesting historical information and maybe insights into the nature of the mind. But I would argue it's gone off at a tangent from what seems to have been the original intention of the Buddha. We can sum that, this, this principle up in the phrase that the Dharma is prescriptive, not descriptive. In other words, the Buddha's interested in providing us with um, a tool that can do something and make a difference. He's not interested in trying to, as it were, get the picture of the world and the person right, provide an accurate account or um, explanation for how things are the way they are. There are plenty of other people who do that. His interest is what we can do in response to the world in which we live. And it's on that basis that we arrive, or I arrive, at thinking of the four in terms of being four tasks rather than four truths. Tasks are prescriptive. In other words, try doing this, or you could do that, or wouldn't it be a good idea to try this out? It's that kind of language. It's a prescriptive language. It's, it's should or rather than is. And this, of course, makes a lot of sense in terms of this repeated um, not buying into it is and it is not. That is the primary descriptive discourse. This is the nature of the mind. The ultimate nature of reality is emptiness. 
what I think is very difficult is to somehow unlearn that habit of thinking. And I think for many of us, it was certainly true in my case, um, I had to spend an awful lot of time unlearning a lot of what I'd been taught. And the, 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 the fulcrum or the, the pivot on which that turns is learning to think in terms of tasks rather than truths. So when I read a text, a Buddhist sutta, I, have to try, I try to get out of the habit of thinking, well, is that true? And instead asking myself, might that work? Try to think of the Dharma as like a toolbox, a toolkit that has spanners and, or the equivalent of spanners and saws and drills and hammers and planes and chisels, each of which is intended for a specific task, which is again another flag against the idea that you know, this is one practice that the Buddha taught, he gained enlightenment, you just do that. That's a rather reductive and narrow way of looking at things. The Buddha provides us with a range of skills and tasks, as do the other later traditions. And the question is, do they work? Not, I must do this because this comes down in an unbroken lineage from God knows when, and these great enlightened masters have all practiced it, therefore if it doesn't work for me, then there's something wrong with me. That might be true, but... <laughs> <laughs> That way of thinking is not helpful. Now, one of the um, one of the common objections to this secular Buddhist approach, this historical critical approach to these texts, um, is to point out that well, actually, Buddhism is an evolving tradition. Of course, it started in these early texts that you're so attached to, Mr. Bachelor. But as, the, you know, as people uh, absorbed these teachings, put them into practice, found themselves in new uh, cultural, historical situations, then that stimulated a further development and a refinement of the philosophy, of the thinking, of the ethics. So we see development within Buddhism. We don't see sort of the kind of decline that you seem to be suggesting. And the argument would be just by going back to the earlier texts and trying to figure out which were the first ones and therefore saying, well, they must be the truest ones, that's what is called the genetic fallacy. Earliest must be best. Therefore, we should all revert to the state of being single-celled amoeba. (laughs) That would be the most pure form of life. Now, that's an objection that, I, that, that comes quite a lot to the kind of approach I'm suggesting. And as we know from the, particularly the, the Mahayana traditions, they are very much invested in the rhetoric of the Hinayana and the Mahayana. The greater vehicle, which is, of course, what we do, And the Hinayana, well, these were very good at the time, people will say, excellent stuff, but um, that was really for a rather less enlightened crowd, not like people like us, you know, bodhisattvas. Um, 
And, and so you, you have this rhetoric which is very embedded in Buddhism. I think it's a huge tragedy, frankly, that so often Buddhism is presented along these lines, even today. You see it everywhere, Hinayana and Mahayana. Hina means inferior. It doesn't mean lesser, as it's politely translated sometimes. It's a, it's a derogatory term. Now, what is to me rather striking is that if you look at the very first verse of our poem, it says, one who dwells in ultimate views and presents them as final will declare all other views inferior. He has not overcome disputes. Now this text was composed long before Buddhists started talking in terms of Hinayana and Mahayana. Hundreds of years before that rhetoric surfaced. And yet the word he uses for inferior is Hina. It's the same word. It's almost weirdly prophetic. Um, it's as though he, the, the poet here was keenly aware of the pitfalls that the tradition was likely to fall into. He understood how human beings tend to behave. So what is, in a way, rather, in French you'd say, hallucinant, hallucinatory, is that here you have uh, clearly a very early text which warns against using words like hina, and then... Lo and behold, it becomes a key term in the rhetoric of the Buddhist tradition itself. Now, I don't see that as an example of the development of the tradition. In fact, I see it very much as a, a failure to um, acknowledge uh, the origins um, of what you claim to represent. These texts got forgotten. Possibly they were suppressed. So what we have um, is developments, in inverted commas, of Buddhist ways of thinking and so on, that don't uh, enhance or refine what's been said in the earlier texts, but actually do precisely what the earlier texts warned us against. Now, we go back to the passage we started with, with Sivaka, and his um, question, there are some wanderers and priests who voice the opinion and hold the view that whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant, painful, or neither, is caused by what was done in the past. Now, what is, again, slightly hallucinatory is that view is, in many Buddhist schools today, the official position. This is how I was taught. I was taught uh, in my training to be a geshe in the Gelugpa school that every experience, be it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that was exactly the language used, is the namingijebu, the ripening effect of karma, of actions done in the past. That is the official view. 
And so whatever I experience subjectively, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that comes from actions I've committed in the past, whereas the environment I find myself in and so on, that comes from what are called uh, contributory causes that I share with others, collective karma that leads us to experience the same sort of world. So um, this again is an example of um, an early teaching having been essentially forgotten and Buddhists repeating precisely what the Buddha regards as, in this text, as mistaken. This is why this text is so problematic, because it flies in the face of Buddhist orthodoxy, or much Buddhist orthodoxy. And we can see the same in... um, Well, let's just give a little little quote here from George Santayana, Santayana, uh, the Spanish-American philosopher, who said, and this is a well-known statement, those who do not learn the lessons of history are bound to repeat its mistakes. And this is where I feel that historical consciousness uh, provides us with, I think, a very valuable tool. Uh, And historical consciousness seems to have been rather lacking um, in the development of traditional Buddhism. Um, Not only were these early teachings forgotten, but they were deliberately um, denigrated as inferior. Yet what is regarded as superior, um, in many respects, is the, um, the opposite uh, of exactly what the Buddha, well, sorry, what is regarded as superior is exactly what the Buddha warned against. And I think another very good example of this, uh, which comes through our four poems, are the ideas of ultimacy and truth. Now, these notions in the four poems are, 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 are repeatedly treated with deep suspicion. the the truth-minded are put in the same category as the wrong-minded. It's just another obsession with opinion. And in much of later Buddhism, also in Theravada Buddhism, this is not only a Mahayana thing, that enlightenment is broadly understood as gaining insight into ultimate truth. Paramata Satya. Paramata Satya. And ultimate truth is contrasted with what is called conventional or relative truth. Samvirti Satya. So, how on earth did this happen? How do we have a tradition that um, is deeply suspicious about claims of ultimacy and truth? to end up basing its whole thinking on ultimate truth as opposed to conventional truth. The first time this distinction is made, ultimate as opposed to conventional or relative, is in the questions of King Melinda, 
Melinda is the Greek, uh, sorry, the Pali spelling of the Greek word Mananda. And King Mananda was an Indo-Greek or a Bactrian Greek king who lived in India in the wake of Alexander's conquests. And he carved out a, a kingdom in the area of the Punjab, Pakistan area. But he lived at a time when the power of Greece had declined in Europe, the Hellenistic world was breaking up, and Rome was becoming the predominant power. And so these Greek colonies kind of got cast adrift. And as part of that process, the, uh, the Greeks who lived in these places uh, turned towards the indigenous traditions uh, for their identity, for their religious and spiritual well-being. And this particular king was very interested in Buddhism. And so there's recorded in Pali a dialogue between Mananda, Melinda, and a Buddhist monk called Nagasena. And it's there, I, can't, I don't have the exact passage, that Nagasena introduces the idea of the two truths. Now this is about 200 years after the Buddha, and it's the first mention we get of that doctrine. I've already said it, but I'll repeat it. Nowhere in the suttas, in the vinaya, uh, in the Pali canon, um, it, it, uh, yeah, the, the, the primary canonical materials are the words ultimate truth and conventional truth even mentioned. They're just not there. And that whole way of thinking, which is so much, it is such an obvious example of oppositional thinking, is, is not, true, false, right, wrong, ultimate, relative. They've fallen into that very trap. But, again, just because Nagasena used these words in this conversation with this Greek king, still doesn't explain why those terms came to such, to be so important. I think there are possibly two reasons for this. One is that by adopting the framework of the two truths, Buddhism somehow fit the model of an Indian religion much better than what it was doing before. And this is probably due to the growing influence of Brahmanism, or what we now call Hinduism. And in the Upanishads, although they don't use the language of ultimate truth, relative truth, nonetheless, they speak very much of the ultimate reality, which is Brahman, or God, the oneness, the, 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 the indivisible oneness of being. Uh, sometimes this is also associated with a kind of divine consciousness. And you have phrases like sat, chit, anand, Truth, consciousness, bliss. That's the ultimate reality from which we are alienated and cut off because we have become seduced by the, uh, the, the illusions of differentiation and multiplicity and difference, which is called maya, the illusory world. So we've become so intoxicated with this world of difference 
and uh, diversity, that we've lost touch, we've become uh, estranged from the ultimate reality of the oneness of the divine. And so in the Upanishadic tradition, um, you systematically, uh, in a way, um, distance yourself from the phenomenal world. And the classical method is to is neti, neti, neti. It's not this. God, the true self, ultimate reality, is not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's not my body. It's not my feelings. It's not my thought. And by that process of subtraction, you allow yourself to return to the primordial unity of God, which, I mean, it's a very beautiful metaphysic, uh, is identical to the truest nature of yourself your Atman, your true self. When Buddhism started speaking the two-truth language, it was essentially adopting that way of thinking. There's an ultimate truth, and we might call it emptiness, we might call it the mind, or spirit or something. <coughs> Buddhists would steer clear of using words like God, obviously. But they came up with plenty of substitutes, um, non-duality or things like that and that means that that particular experience is privileged it's given a different ontological status in other words it's regarded as being more true, more real than the illusory world that we see through the senses and the stuff that comes up in our minds so you therefore have a language now, ultimate truth, relative truth, that corresponds very well with the normative way of religious thinking in India. That's one reason, perhaps, that gave rise to this way of thinking, as Buddhism mutated into another Indian religion. But I feel there might be another reason for it as well, And that is that once you set up a two-truth model, um, you create the theoretical foundations for a structure of authority and power. Uh, In other words, um, it it, it, it gives a, a legitimacy to certain people, those who have gained access to this ultimate truth, the enlightened ones, as opposed to the, the rabble, like us, who are mired in conventional and relative truths and don't know what is really the case. And I suspect that in the development of religious thinking, there is a parallel development in the development of religious institutions which are essentially structures of power. Those who have the power happen to be those who know the truth. And those who don't have the power are those who don't know the truth. Therefore, those without power need to... um, look to those with power if they are to gain access to the truth. 
So here we have a typical you know, pre-Reformation Christian situation. The priests, the Pope, or the Buddhist monks and their teachers are the intercessionaries who make available the deeper truths to us benighted creatures. Now this, uh, this approach reaches its apogee um, in, in Tibetan Buddhism where the Lama is regarded as the Buddha, perfect, you can't see anything wrong in the Lama, and the Lama as the Buddha is directly and constantly um, in the ultimate reality of shunyata, or emptiness, and if we are to reach that same state, we need to um, surrender our authority to that figure. Tsongkhapa, for example, says we should let go of our autonomy, our rang wang, our own power, and give ourselves to the zhen wang, the other power of the lama, of the teacher. And I don't think we can differentiate the evolution of power with the evolution of dogma. I think the two go hand in hand. And what is striking in this way about the early Buddhist tradition is that it doesn't provide an ontological uh, theory or basis for hierarchical power. That there's actually a totally level playing field, a totally egalitarian system. That the Sangha is composed of the monks, the nuns, the laymen, and the laywomen. They're all capable of um, experiencing awakening. They're all capable of practicing the four tasks. And before the Buddha dies, he does not appoint a successor, but says instead, the Dharma will be your teacher. He envisages a community that is governed by the authority of an impersonal body of laws. Dharma means law, of principles, of values, of practices. Very different picture to how Buddhism has evolved as an institution. So now when, in some Buddhist traditions, when you say the Sangha, it lit- literally means the monks and the nuns. But nowhere in the early text do you find that. In other words, the community has now been appropriated by the professional elite. Now, please don't take me as being critical of individual monks and nuns whom I admire enormously. I'm looking at the structures involved, the the, the overall historical structures. I remember once um, I went to a Zen center in... Minneapolis, and I participated in their morning ceremony in which they recited the precepts. And um, the way this went was, um, and I'm paraphrasing probably, I don't remember word for word, they would, they would chant, ultimately there is no killing, but I take the precept not to kill. Ultimately there is no stealing, but I take the precept not to steal. Now, this is a a translation of these two truths into the moral sphere. And, again, I find this very dodgy. 
Because basically the person who therefore has access to the ultimate truth, who weirdly happens to be the man in charge, (laughs) is basically freed from the relative and conventional constraints of morality. There is no killing, there is no stealing, there is no sexual abuse, ultimately. And someone who lives from that perspective is somehow thereby excused from uh, having to somehow conform to the norms of of, of popular ethical behaviour. So in some ways, I feel that when we return to these um, early texts, we find ourselves returning to uh, teachings and perspectives that Buddhism has somehow forgotten, perhaps suppressed, perhaps found too awkward and uncomfortable to to deal with. Now, I realise, of course, that as any religious tradition tries to perpetuate itself and survive in the world, it needs, well, it almost inevitably will find itself making compromises. And we don't have to look very far to see this. We start with um, a carpenter's son who had a few friends around the Lake of Galilee. And the next thing we know, we have uh, the Vatican. Now, this does not mean that, um, you know, that everything went bad from day one, but it shows that there's, a, there's an almost unavoidable uh, conflict between, let's say, the, the, a vow of poverty and then living in a gilded palace. And I, I find it quite moving that the current Pope Francis refuses to live in the Vatican. I think that's a good sign, but again, I'm deeply suspicious of what the motives might be. <laughs> I don't know. I, hope, I really do hope he is a... I, I suspect he's a good man, a really good man. I think Ratzinger was a good man, but they were trapped in a, in, in, in a, in a system which made it very difficult for them to, um, to really have much effect institutionalization basically becomes an enormous constraint against any kind of change, paradoxically. And Buddhism is in much the same position with its institutions, which tend to be conservative, reactionary, attached to power and authority. It's the same story everywhere you look. But what does this imply? It might be that we have reached a point where we simply have to put all of the history of the tradition and its doctrines and its philosophies and its institutions and its power structures to one side and start all over again. And uh, again, one of the reasons I mentioned the, the Begin and the Valdensians and these small, largely forgotten proto-Protestant sects in medieval Europe is because I really identify with those people um, who tend to be not you know, highly um, cultured intellectuals or theologians or 
deeply spiritual priests or whatever, but tend to be ordinary folk. Uh, the, 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 the Begin and the Begar were closely affiliated to the guilds in these old European towns. Uh, there was a sense of belonging that wasn't just one of belief, but also by the work you did. There was something very earthy about some of these communities. And they continue today. There are, you know, there's, there's now an attempt to revive the Begin in California, I've, I've read somewhere. But it's not just a, a question of how do we therefore organize ourselves, though I think that's a very important one, uh, but it's also how willing we are to, um, to let go of so much that the tradition has, has taught us and, and, and presented to us uh, and recover elements that perhaps have been forgotten. And particularly, that's one of the reasons why I'm so keen on like these poems, is that here we're tapping into something very, very primordial. But what is strange, I find, is that the further back one goes, the more radical the teaching becomes. And so radical means root, but also in the conventional sense of, of challenging, of provocative, of unsettling. It's also quite, um, I was quite, I'm quite struck also, a little bit uncomfortable actually, with where he says in the poem, he lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows, by his beliefs, nor does he join a dissenting faction. <laughs> That's, of course, the other temptation, is we become the rebels, you see. And, um, you, know, we've, you know, secular Buddhism becomes a dissenting faction. I think one has to be very careful that by setting up uh, communities of dissent, that doesn't free us from the kind of uh, ways of thinking and behaving that those we reject, or what we reject, um, are doing. In other words... Um, that's the history of dissent in so many ways, is that the dissenters, if they're successful, then become the next establishment. And then that triggers another wave of dissent. And perhaps that's unavoidable, I suspect, in the, in the dialectics of history, if we can still use that outdated term. But it does raise the question of just shifting your, your metaphysics and your commitment to right and wrong to a kind of oppositional stance to the establishment. But how can we live without, as it were, taking a stance? That, again, is the question to which I keep coming back, for which I don't have a ready-made answer. So how do we listen to and practice these poems? We've come to the end of them now. So I'd just like to pose that question once again. The poems themselves don't give us any instructions. There's no, you know, okay, now you must do A, B, C, and D. None of that. No meditation instructions, no advices, no moral 
injunctions, no ethics are being presented at all. In fact, the only times those terms occur is as things to be wary about. The sage is not entangled in rules, views, ideas. It all, it all becomes rather unsettling, I find. There's nothing much anymore to hold on to. And that, of course, is what we want. We want something to hold on to. We want a place, an alaya, to hold on to. Um, and craving, of course, al- although it usually means a rather emotive kind of behavior, it also refers to um, the craving for views, the desire to have something to believe, the desire to uh, be able to constantly refer back to something I think of as true, dependable, reliable. Hold on to that. Buddhism, whatever it might be. But that doesn't seem to be the way either. My sense is that um, these poems are more a teaching by example. And in that sense, they are poetry rather than discursive or didactic prose. And in the language of creative writing workshops, they're interested in showing us something rather than telling us something. This is almost the mantra of creative writing. Show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't explain what it is the character is doing. Show the character doing these things. You don't have to step back and say, and now John is thinking. You present the inner monologue of John's thoughts. And these poems, I think, are an excellent example of showing rather than telling. Whereas what happens in the development of a a religious tradition very often is that the, the showing gets replaced by the telling. In other words, the commentarial tradition that tells you what it means. Everywhere. Look at this. the early Zen koans are wonderful examples of showing. It's just, you know, the teacher, the student, an exchange, and something is shown. And yet you look at the, 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 the rest of, say, the Blue Cliff Record, and it's endless attempts to explain, to tell you what it means. Uh, the tradition always wants to somehow have that power of knowing what these things are really about. So, as we listen to these poems, as we read these poems, I think the most we can perhaps do is try to rest in the radical openness that the poet reveals. But not just to rest in it, but also to ask ourselves how we might live from that perspective. How we might actually live a life without opinions. So I'll just read the poem once again, because I haven't said much about it. One who dwells in ultimate views and presents them as final will declare all other views inferior. He has not overcome disputes. Seeing his own advantage, 
He seizes hold of views, words, rules and ideas in this way and sees everything else as base. The good opine that he puts down others because he has tied himself in knots. The beggar does not get entangled in views, words, ideas or rules. He does not elaborate a view on the grounds of knowledge or morals. He neither claims to be equal nor thinks of himself as better or worse. He lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows. Nor does he join a dissenting faction. He assumes no view at all. He's not lured into the blind alleys of it is and it is not, this world and the next. For he lacks those commitments that make people ponder and seize hold of teachings. There's no hint of contrivance in his perception of views, words and ideas. Who can judge the priest who holds no views? By what standard can you measure him? He doesn't elaborate, nor does he flatter. He has not taken up any teachings. You cannot gauge this priest by his rules. He has gone beyond, with nothing to fall back on. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. So tomorrow we're going, I'm not going to do the piece on quarrels and disputes. Um, read it if you wish, um, and we can have some discussion about it. Um, but I'm going to do the section um, on emptiness tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.